Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Dozens of countries around the world have high-speed rail. Now there's a proposal to bring it to New England. Fast, frequent, reliable, and well-priced rail. So we're talking about a real revolution in the way we move around. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about the proposed North Atlantic Rail and what it could take to make it a reality. Plus, a New Hampshire woman is stranded halfway around the world during the pandemic. But then something sweet happens. Well, I've had quite a year here. (laughs) And I got a boyfriend out of the lockdown. And racial and ethnic bias incidents appear to have increased on college campuses. I froze for a second because I was just confused. And then I saw the rest of my hall start to open their doors and everyone was just standing there like, what happened? We'll hear about growing frustration at a local college. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Ten public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We're starting the show today with the Wasti family. My name is Noreen Wasti. My father was Salman Wasti. He passed away from COVID-19 on December 27, 2020. Salman Wasti was born in Pakistan in 1944. He came to the U.S. in his early 20s for graduate school. Then eventually he settled in New England and was a professor of biology at Rhode Island College. He worked there for over three decades. A year ago, the first COVID-19 death was reported in the U.S. Wasti is one of more than 500,000 people who have died in the country since then. His story is part of a project called Faces of COVID, which is helping us remember the people behind the statistics. And today, in partnership with WBUR, here's Salman Wasti's story told by his daughter, Noreen. My parents took all the precautions. They were masked, they were social distancing, and I never thought that they would get it in their small little town. I started feeling this guilt the week before Thanksgiving. I said, I haven't seen them in so long. I feel so bad, they're alone. And I said to my dad, what do you think? Should we come drive up and see you? He said, no, it's better to be safe than sorry. Do not come. And there's three very exciting vaccines on the horizon, and we will meet when we're all vaccinated. I was married in September 2013, and my dad gave a lovely speech. Should I start playing it? Welcome. Salams, greetings. It was a surprise to all of us. He hadn't shared anything of what he was going to say. Please join me in wishing the bride and groom the best of everything in life. And we hope all your dreams come true and you live happily ever after. 
the speech is just there's no tears there's no you know emotional kind of tribute but it's just very simple and understated and it's just him and i always tell my mom my mom is the more emotional one and i say we need to be a bit more like dad like sensible and pragmatic and let's be how dad would have been in this situation i would definitely describe my father as a homebody i used to say that even if somebody gave dad a fully paid trip anywhere he wanted to go he would rather stay home he has to take care of the plants and check the mail that's what he would say he was one of the first pakistani muslims in the area to you know start community events for eid and ramadan and things like that my parents used to have a lot of musical evenings where they would sing old bollywood songs together with their friends with like a speaker system and a mic the moment you walk into our home there's a sunroom and there's a beautiful worn leather armchair with all his books that he's collected i mean hundreds and hundreds the bookshelf goes up to the the ceiling when he would visit pakistan he would go to the antique shops and the old bazaars and pick up you know big copper platters and persian rugs and you know different knickknacks and i always said to him oh i want those whenever i have a big enough space i'm taking all of those and he he said you can take whatever you want you know they're here for you but that sunroom was like his abode and he was just always there he was always sitting there and <sighs> used to sit with his feet up and his baseball cap on and you know would run to open the door if you came home and he was always around so i just felt like i never took advantage of kind of extracting everything i could from him So after my dad passed, I I started, you know, going through the basement and I just found boxes and boxes of documents from his life, letters, postcards. There was a journal from 1978 where he had spent a few months back home in Pakistan and he talks about how this is my home but I don't feel at home here anymore. You just never see that side of a parent, you know. That's me 5 years ago emotionally turmoiled about what I was doing in life and to see him in that way and he clearly had intricate feelings and thoughts and experiences. So I wish I knew more about that. But he doesn't know about that part of me as well, so maybe that's life. <laughs> My mom started feeling a few mild symptoms and then sh- a few days later, my dad started feeling the same symptoms. He tested positive right after Thanksgiving, and the whole week he said, "I'm f- I feel fine." The next week, I had messaged 
my mom and she said, you know, dad's feeling really weak and slightly disoriented. And I said, what is his oxygen level? And she said, 80. I said, you need to go to the hospital right now. She said, I dropped him outside of the ER. He refused a wheelchair. He walked in and he never walked out. The updates, I would feel like nausea every time they would call because I just never knew what they were going to say. On December 27th, they called and I can still hear them telling my mom or your husband, he didn't make it. And my I can just, I can see my mom's face. And um, that was it. I always tell my mom, don't let the month of December be his life. You know, he had so many other years of important things. That's not who he was, you know. You know, every night we would call and my the nurse would keep the phone next to his ear and we would play him his favorite old Bollywood songs. Um, from the 1950s. Those were the ones that he would sing solo with a microphone in our sunroom. And there's one about, you know, the weather being so beautiful on a certain day. And we played that for him while he was in the hospital and my mom was singing along with it. I mean, we don't know if he heard us, but we can hope he did. That was Noreen Wasti. Her father, Salman Wasti, died of COVID-19 in December. This piece was produced by WBUR's Chloe Axelson and Franny Kartoff in partnership with Faces of COVID. Special thanks to Alex Goldstein. Millions of homes in the U.S. are at risk of flooding. That's according to new data from First Street Foundation, a research group. And if they flood, many homeowners don't have enough insurance to cover their losses. This is especially true for lower-income people. Joining us to talk about the findings is Rebecca Hersher. She's a reporter at NPR's Science Desk. Rebecca, welcome to Next. Hey, thanks for having me. When you first looked at this new data, what stood out to you most? So the first thing was really just how widespread this problem is. You know, New England has a lot of flood risk. I think that's probably obvious to a lot of people who live there. But so do a lot of places that people might not think of. So that includes Appalachia, the Mountain West. But the real headline, the thing that I think sticks out the most, is the enormous financial cost that everyone who's living in a flood-prone area is at risk for. So even like an inch of water in a house, it can do so much damage And the cost of repairing from a flood, it can easily be in the tens of thousands of dollars. And a lot of people, they just don't have the insurance or the savings to pay for that. Wow. Okay. So I definitely want to talk about that. But first, in terms of New England, what spots are we talking about that are most at risk of flooding? 
So we are talking about the coast, which I think won't be surprising to people. And I don't want to underestimate that, you know, especially places that are heavily developed right on the water. But there's also a lot of flood risk away from the coast. And that's because climate change, it doesn't just cause sea level rise. It also causes more heavy rain. So we're seeing more and more flood risk in big swaths of the Great North Woods, across northern New Hampshire, northern Maine, the Connecticut River Valley as well. Which is not intuitive. And and you say that there's this obvious connection to climate change, which we know is increasing the risk of flooding. But it's interesting because FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, does not take that into account. And can you explain how that affects insurance? Yes. So basically what happens is it's led to underpriced insurance in a lot of places. So the premiums that people are paying they don't actually cover the cost of damage, which is one reason that developers keep building in dangerous places. And why doesn't FEMA consider climate change? Well, FEMA's flood maps, they're pretty rudimentary. They're not designed to continuously adapt to the climate, for example, as sea levels rise. And just to be clear, it's actually really hard to do this to accurately model changing flood risk over time. It's expensive. It's labor intensive. And what FEMA will tell you is they just don't have the money or the mandate from Congress to fix a lot of this stuff. Are there spots in New England where we see the risk go up when climate is considered? Yeah, especially coastal areas. So the New Hampshire coast, the south shore of Massachusetts, Cape Cod and the islands, the southern part of coastal Rhode Island and the southern part of coastal Connecticut, those are all places that are expected to see rising flood damage costs in the coming years. And that's according to this new data, which does take into account climate change. So generally, I think, you know, if you own a home that's at risk of flood damage, you hope that you have insurance that will cover that damage. But NPR found that some communities are not getting that coverage, as you've talked about. But who are we talking about here? Who's getting the better insurance deals? Well, you know, to be blunt, the people who are getting the best deals on flood insurance are people who live in whiter places. That's what we found. And you might wonder, you know, what is a good deal on flood insurance? If you're getting a good deal, that means the gap between what you're paying for flood insurance and the expected cost of flood damage is really big. And so we're seeing the biggest gap in whiter places. You also found that richer people were often getting better insurance coverage, too. What's that about? So it's probably not that surprising to a lot of people, honestly, that you would see race and income sort of tracking together like this because, you know, systemic racism in America means that race and income often track together. And especially when we're talking about housing, which we are here, you know, where black homeowners have systematically been held back from accruing wealth. So we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing that richer people have this bigger gap. They're getting this better deal. And do we know why that is? So one reason might be something that's actually baked into FEMA's price scheme. So basically, FEMA doesn't account for the value of the house when it sets the price of insurance. And that means people with more expensive houses, they automatically get better deals. So if you imagine that in the U.S., white people and richer people are more likely to own more expensive houses for all kinds of reasons, then that could help explain these disparities that we're seeing. Now, FEMA is set to adjust its flood insurance prices this year What is that going to mean for people who can't afford it? So the first thing I'll say, just related to what we were just talking about, is that the new prices could help address the race and income disparities. But yeah, the overall price of flood insurance, it is expected to go up for most people when FEMA adjusts the prices. 
And that will mean it's increasingly unaffordable, which is a huge problem because people who don't have either insurance or a lot of savings, which most Americans don't, they suffer more after disasters. It can affect mental and physical health. It can affect family stability. And when a lot of people in one place don't have the money they need to repair their homes after a flood, it can ripple through the whole community and actually hurt the whole community and businesses in that community. Is there any indication that FEMA or another federal organization might be working to address this? So FEMA, interestingly, it can't address affordability on its own. Only Congress can do that. There have been attempts to do that. So far, they've fizzled out. But the Biden administration says that addressing climate change in an equitable way is a priority. So we'll see. Okay, Rebecca Hersher is a reporter at NPR's Science Desk. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks. After the break, the North Atlantic Rail, a train that could get you from Boston to New York City in under two hours. Plus, a New Hampshire woman finds love while stranded halfway around the world. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. High-speed rail is getting some buzz right now. I want the U.S. to be leading the world when it comes to access to high-speed rail, and, and I think we have a real opportunity to do that. That's Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg on MSNBC in early February. He says there's a lot of bipartisan support for high-speed rail right now. Okay, we know there's been talk of this for years in New England, but there is some momentum for the proposed North Atlantic Rail. It would connect New York City to Boston, plus a whole slew of other mid-sized cities around our region, like Providence, Rhode Island, Brattleboro, Vermont, and Concord, New Hampshire. Robert Yarrow leads the planning process for the North Atlantic Rail. He's the former president of the Regional Plan Association. And he joins us to talk about what high-speed rail could mean for our region. Bob, welcome to Next. Well, thanks, and and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So why build a train through New England in the first place? What are the benefits? You know, our sense is that this is going to be the answer to dealing with climate change, or at least the transportation piece of climate change in the region. It's also going to enable the kind of work-from-home pattern and hybrid work pattern and settlement pattern that we expect to see emerge in the post-COVID pandemic era. So for a variety of reasons, you know, this is a real game changer for New England. It will underpin the revitalization of these old industrial centers across New England, you know, places like Waterbury and Bangor and Springfield and Holyoke and Fall River and so forth that have just been left out of the prosperity of the last 40 or 50 years. It'll also decongest Boston and New York because we think that a lot of people are going to choose not to live right in the center of these big congested expensive regions and, and instead choose to live in mid-sized cities that are more affordable, more livable, and, and then still accessible to New York City and Boston. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple cities that the high-speed rail would go through. Um, why the particular route that you've chosen? What factors did you take into account? We looked at a range of alternatives for getting from New York to Boston, and the, obviously the existing one uses the New Haven Line rail corridor It's the most heavily used and heavily congested rail corridor in the country. It is 
120 or more years old. It kind of winds through densely populated areas in Fairfield and New Haven counties. There's no room to widen it. There's no room to straighten it out. And there's no room to shoehorn high-speed trains into the corridor. These trains are going to be moving at, at 200 or more miles per hour. So for a variety of reasons, the only way to get the travel times and to get a corridor that works, we've chosen an alternative alignment through Long Island uh, using old uh, rail freight lines that are either abandoned or provide only very limited service, one or two trains a week. We'd go inland from New Haven to Hartford and then in a new alignment across eastern Connecticut and western Rhode Island to Providence and then from there into the existing corridor to Boston. I noticed that much of the train route is not along the coast, of course, with the exception of that Long Island portion and a couple other spots. And does this have to do at all with climate change and concerns about flooding and infrastructure? Yes, it does. I mean, the reality is that there are a number of places where the existing corridor is going to be subject to more frequent flooding with sea level rise and and more frequent storms and storm surges. And so we've chosen an inland route essentially to make this an all-weather corridor, not just now, but you know, well into the next century. So I think there are a couple basic things that people want to know about the high-speed train and this proposal. So let's hit on a few of those quick facts. And first off, how fast is it? Like, let's say you're going from Boston to New York City. How long would that take, roughly? We're estimating 100 minutes. It's currently three-hour and 45-minute service, so it's cutting it by you know 60% or more. And how about the cost? How much would would a ride cost? Well, we haven't quite figured that out yet, but it depends on the extent to which the federal government decides to foot the bill for the construction costs. Around the world, there are 27 countries that have high-speed rail systems. Most of them are funded entirely by national governments and most of them using debt. And then they, they essentially don't require that the passengers pay for the construction costs. You mentioned that the passengers wouldn't have to cover the cost, but in a way they would if the federal government is footing the bill because taxpayers would be covering that. How much are we talking? What is the cost of this proposal in its entirety? Yeah, total cost is estimated at a little over $100 billion. That's with a B, uh, which uh, used to sound like a lot of money. It still is a lot of money. We're proposing that this be funded through President Biden's proposed national infrastructure program, which originally estimated at $2 trillion. I saw an estimate over the weekend that the Congress is proposing that this program be up to $3.4 trillion. For a region with 11% of the population of the country and 14% of its economy, we think this is in scale with the enormity of the, of the region and its economy. Let's say Biden says, yes, it's a go. How long would it take to be operational, meaning all the phases of this proposal have been completed? We believe the whole thing can be in service in 20 years. Okay. Uh, but but there, there would be initial operating segments that would be under construction within a year or 18 months and, and in service within a couple of three years, something like that. Now, a big question mark is whether or not people use the train. Like, for example, the the train line that goes from Hartford to Springfield doesn't run very regularly right now, which limits when and how people can use that train. So with the North Atlantic Rail, how do you make sure it's useful to people and they actually want to get on it and take a ride? Well, our definition of high-performance rail is fast, frequent, reliable, and well-priced rail. 
so we're talking about a real revolution in the way we move around. And we think that if we can do those things, then in fact people are going to choose to travel this way. This is, it's an exciting proposal and it's a, sounds like a huge proposal and it's also in that phase, the proposal phase. So, so what's next? What needs to happen for this train system be, to become a reality? The only way it's going to happen is if it's included in, if funding is included in the, in this national infrastructure program. So we see this as a once in a lifetime opportunity to modernize the transportation infrastructure of the Northeast and of the country. There are other high speed rail and regional rail projects like this that are, that are in the proposal stage all over the country. And uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a number of them included in this infrastructure package that the Congress and the White House are putting together. We're now reaching out to to the entire seven-state congressional delegation to gain their support, and we're uh, working with the Biden administration to gain their support for this thing. But So it either happens or it doesn't happen you know, in the next few months. Robert Yarrow leads the planning process for the North Atlantic Rail. He was formerly a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and president of the Regional Plan Association. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. During the pandemic, New Hampshire Public Radio received hundreds, if not thousands, of emails from listeners. These are people sharing their frustrations over COVID-19 or asking questions about the vaccine. One recent email stood out because of where it was sent from. It came from a New Hampshire woman stranded on the other side of the globe. NHPR's Todd Bookman reached out. The email came from Carol Clapp. My name is Carol Clapp of Epping, New Hampshire. And I have been stuck in New Zealand on the bottom of the South Island in a town called Riverton for the past year and a half because of the coronavirus. Carol and I connected through a video call. Me from my living room, she from her sunny porch. Yeah, they're, they're birds. <laughs> and that's a gum tree, a eucalyptus behind me. Carol has been riding out the pandemic, sitting underneath a eucalyptus tree in New Zealand, a country that instituted and followed strict public health guidelines and within months had basically stamped out COVID. There's almost no community spread. So how exactly did she end up stuck there? It's a long story. (laughs) Carol was married to a man named David for 43 years. They liked to travel. In 1978, they vacationed in New Zealand. 20 years later, their son decided to go to college there. And we ended up buying a house and David and I have, well, he died five years ago, Um, but we came down here for the past 19 years just for the summers. After David's death, Carol, who's 73, continued making the 30-hour trip each year, leaving Epping in October and getting a return ticket each April. She's a long-distance snowbird. So she was in the small town of Riverton when COVID exploded last March and she couldn't leave. New Zealand immigration wasn't letting anybody leave the country or come into the country because they take the virus very seriously here. And so they gave all of us stranded tourists, visitor types, a six-month extension on our visas. And then another extension. The government has been gracious to Carol. And it turns out, so have some of the locals. Well, I've had quite a quite a year here, <laughs> and that that I I got a boyfriend out of the the lockdown, and uh, and Al is my uh, 
my new man and he just takes really good care of me and I've been having a wonderful time during this terrible crisis and um can I ask how you met Al uh <laughs> I met him at this uh well yeah I I picked him up in a bar talk <laughs> picked him up i've never picked a man up before but i just could not leave this guy alone (laughs) so who is this eye candy i asked carol if i could meet him he's here somewhere he said he wouldn't run away al are you here al (laughs) the bum (laughs) he's abandoned me When Carol and I spoke last week, they had plans to go into town and dance. No masks, no social distancing. Carol says after New Zealand emerged from a strict lockdown last spring, her life has returned to normal. But Carol's actual normal life is in New Hampshire. It's where her family is. Next month, her visa will finally expire, and she plans on coming home to Epping. That's actually why she originally reached out to NHPR. She had questions about the vaccination process here. I had one last question for her. Carol, how are you going to stay in touch with him? Well, since he's not here, I can tell you, I'm buying him a computer. (laughs) I'm buying an iPad. (laughs) And I'm going to make him take lessons on email. (laughs) And and I've given him my old iPhone. I'm going to make him write me love letters through email. He might even Zoom. Who knows? Uh, But he's going to have to step up. It's true. As long as Al steps up, the couple will make it work long distance. That is until she can get vaccinated and hopefully this fall head back to New Zealand. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. It looks like racial and ethnic bias incidents have been increasing on college campuses. According to a recent report, three out of four colleges surveyed in the U.S. had reported such cases during the past two years. From the higher ed desk at GBH Radio in Boston, Kirk Carapeza reports, some people at a local college campus are getting more and more frustrated by how these incidents are being handled. Earlier this month, young black and brown women living in a multicultural dorm at Boston College say they were startled awake in the middle of the night as two white students ran through their hall, banging on doors and trashing the place. I heard a loud noise, and so I opened the door and I actually saw the boys run through, and I saw the trash cans being turned over. Amabel Francois is a first-year student from West Warwick, Rhode Island. She's black and lives on the hall. I froze for a second because I was just confused. And then I saw the rest of my hall start to open their doors and everyone was just standing there like, what happened? Looking back, Francois says she and other students of color were targeted. There's a girl's floor right down from us, and that's predominantly white girls, and their floor was clean. Why was it just our floor? Since then, Francois has moved back home because she says her parents worry about her safety. And administrators say two students have confessed and been disciplined. Whatever the student's motive, many of the young women say the incident made them feel threatened and unprotected on the predominantly white campus where just 4% of undergrads are black. Locally, this isn't an isolated case. Just this month at Tufts, someone gained control of a professor's screen and scrawled a racist term across his slides. In December, a menorah on Dartmouth's campus was vandalized. And last spring, Harvard students began mapping incidents of anti-Asian aggression on 
and off campus. There are a lot of incidents that occur that don't get the kind of media coverage that you see from some either major incidents or major schools. Christopher Jones is the diversity and inclusion officer at the University of Redlands in California. In 2019, he led a national survey of equal opportunity professionals on campuses and found students of color are experiencing hate and harassment incidents more frequently, but often don't report them to administrators who tend to be white. Are you finding these incidents are more likely to occur at wealthy, predominantly white private colleges? If you have a very low percentage of African-American students or Latinx students, make those folks even more marginalized than they otherwise might be. And we just have to look at it, I think, not just from an institutional standpoint, but from a larger societal standpoint. This month's incident at Boston College comes nearly a year after the murder of George Floyd. In a statement to the campus community in June, BC President Father William Leahy said hatred and racism have no place anywhere, and he called on students and faculty to challenge such behavior. So far, Leahy hasn't publicly weighed in on this most recent incident, but some students and professors are questioning his silence and whether BC and other colleges are really committed to confronting racism. I think what the university needs to do is sort of be true to itself, no more talk and some action. Elizabeth Rhodes has taught Hispanic studies at Boston College for the past 30 years, and she's noticed a broader economic and social shift on campus. The students have become more wealthy, which usually means that minority students are economically disadvantaged. The floor is supposed to be a multicultural learning floor, and what it has become is a silo for students of color, which makes them very easy to target. Rhodes says the lack of diversity and housing situation on campus has only increased the isolation of minority students. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kirk Carapeza. Coming up, Rhode Island's Poet Laureate talks about the mysterious ways our mind can travel in life and through poetry. And an old covered bridge in Vermont burns down. Its absence is about more than just losing history. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Our next guest is Poet Laureate of Rhode Island. Fina Kane is founder and director of Writers in Schools Rhode Island. That's a program that brings professional writers into public schools. And she's the author of multiple books of poetry, including Once More with Feeling. Tina, welcome to Next. Hi, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Tina, it's my understanding that you were drawn to writing when you were a kid, but not necessarily to poetry. But then there's this story of you bringing a folder of poems to a kind of scary college professor. Can you share that with the listeners? 
Sure. Yeah, that's Margaret Edwards. And actually, we're still in touch after all these years. She was a very stern professor with a Southern drawl, and she wore like riding boots and a cape, and she kind of had Emily Dickinson hair. And she referred to herself in the third person during the first class. And I remember a lot of people who were in the first class were not there for the second class because she had very stringent guidelines. But um, so we read a lot of great poetry. And at some point, I was writing poetry. And I thought, well, nobody's read my stuff. I'm going to give it to her. And I know she'll be honest. Um, And I don't know her. So if she hates it, it won't be too terrible. Um, So I gave her a folder and she graciously took it. And then she called me a few days later and said, come on over to my house. Let's talk. (laughs) And so So I did. she liked it. Yeah. You know, like I, I think... You know, I think I would be horrified to, I don't even know what kind of poems I gave her. Um, I I don't want to know, but they were early attempts. And, you know, I was very interested in writing and she was just very encouraging for many years through letters and correspondence. So now fast forward and you're a published poet and the poet laureate of Rhode Island. And I'm wondering if you could read us one of your poems. Sure. I have a poem here called Mysterious Ways, and uh, it's part of a collection in process. Mysterious Ways. I'm imagining Jesus moving like the moon through cornfields, wandering myself into a thicket and reflecting on the nature of permission. As I read about John Berryman's letter to his landlord, in which he complains about his screaming Frigidaire, We all have our fridges to bear, the critic quips, and I laugh out loud in my bed, nestled in amber lamplight, where despite a heavy blanket, I spend the night tossing and turning to avoid squashing my busted toaster of a shoulder, as if all hope were contained in my right rotator cuff, as if the ability to pivot could be crushed by intermittent dreams. Spinning in half sleep, I list positions I know, physical, political, sexual, my disposition, my orientation, my mission in this life and next. My mind leaps to a hospital in Jerusalem, where I heard there's a whole ward for people who believe they're Jesus, where clothed in white robes, they move through midnight corridors, the walls like grail. It's morning now, and I'm hoping to get a letter from Mary, who dispenses wisdom via snail mail. How do you know when something is finished, people often ask her. When I'm done thinking about it, she always says. But what if the thinking never ends? I write back. What then? Thank you so much, Tina. That was great. Uh, My guest is Tina Kane, Poet Laureate of Rhode Island, reading her poem, Mysterious Ways. And Tina, tell me what this poem means to you. Sometimes I don't even know myself. You know, they come from these kind of layers of consciousness. And I think that this idea of thinking that doesn't end probably has to do with concerns and themes in one's life and and also in poetry. And the initial image of imagining Jesus moving like the moon through cornfields, I was watching this Danish drama on Netflix and one of the characters has this reverie and he's walking through cornfields and that's where I I got that image. So I think it's about the mysterious ways in which our consciousness and our interior lives manifest themselves. 
Yeah, it feels like what you're saying is very much encapsulated in that line, wandering myself into a thicket. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. thicket of the mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you are the founder of Writers in Schools, Rhode Island, which is work you've continued doing as a poet laureate. And how do you get kids to engage with poetry? Well, it's not as hard as one would think. I really like to go in with a tough crowd that's very skeptical and try to win them over. It's usually over many weeks. And I think the first few weeks is always establishing a rapport of mutual respect. But like, look, I'm here as a poet because I love to do this. And I really want you to get the joy back in writing and really rediscover what you used to love about words when you were really little. Um, Because I think sometimes, and I've seen it in my own children, no fault of their teachers or even their education necessarily, it's probably a larger problem, but how the act of writing um, through formal education tends to kind of squeeze all the joy out of it and it becomes much more about summarizing or demonstrating comprehension or knowledge. And so, you know, I usually try to show the students a bunch of poems they're just never going to see like that, you know, they'll never encounter unless a poet, someone who's really steeped in the form would bring it to them. And then because I was an English teacher for many years, I'd say like, these are the rules. You really need to know them so that when you break them, you're making deliberate decisions and you're in control of your writing. And they kind of like this idea of joy plus control, <laughs> you know? which are things that as you move on in your school life, sometimes you have less of than you'd really want, right? And do you find that they're responsive and that they, at least some of the kids are inspired to create their own work? Oh, absolutely. It's kind of amazing. A lot of the kids say they want to be a poet afterwards. And I always say, okay, well, you know, just get another side job. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I, I think that, you know, look, even if none of them become poets, they've had this time to rediscover their voices. And oftentimes I hear from teachers that they're learning things about their students that they never knew. Like even something as significant as a parent who's died or is in jail or um, some other significant life event. And, you know, when they have the space and the freedom to fully express themselves, all of it comes out. Well, Tina, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate your reaching out. Continuing with this theme of kids and discovery, students at Bishop Girton High School in Nashua, New Hampshire, got a chance to speak to an astronaut in outer space in February. New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson has more. After over a year of preparation by students at the Nashua Private School, they were able to connect via amateur radio to the International Space Station at 12.56 p.m. on February 19th, an antennae on the ISS connected to a signal from Hollis. November Alpha 1, Sierra Sierra, are you ready for the students' questions? Over. As the space station hurtled 200 miles above Earth, astronaut Shannon Walker answered students' questions. And what landmark on Earth looks the most amazing from space? Over. You know what? I think the Grand Canyon looks most amazing from space. Sometimes when the light hits it just right, it looks like it's raised above the Earth as opposed to being a giant canyon. Over. 
Sophomore Ethan Labby says he was filled with awe. He hopes one day to work for NASA and maybe explore outer space himself. It's just a big mystery and it just fascinates me, the, the size of it, all the, the sights to see and everything. And I hope to answer some of those questions one day. The students got 10 minutes to talk to Walker before they lost signal, and ISS made its way across the Atlantic. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. In an upcoming show, we're going to talk about the big push right now to get more students back to school in person. And we want to hear from you. Parents, teachers, students, administrators, how are you feeling about this? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thanks. Vermont is home to about 100 covered bridges. They're old, historic, and they attract tourists from around the country. But in early February, the bridge in the small town of Troy burned down. As Vermont Public Radio's Anna Van Dyne reports, residents are mourning more than just the loss of history. It was just before noon on Saturday, February 6th, and Heather Lighty was sitting on the couch with her husband. He showed her a video someone had posted online. And it just said, Bridge on Bayhew Road. I just instantly started crying. And I called my mom. And I'm like, Mom, Mom, our bridge. She goes, what about our bridge? I'm like, it's burning. And it was. The only covered bridge remaining in the Northeast Kingdom town of Troy, it stretched 92 feet across the Missisquoi River and 111 years of time itself. It was built in 1910 by the rough hands and old-time ingenuity of local farmers whose names don't show up in history books. Draft horses likely dragged the timber to the riverbank, and the bridge builders carefully assembled the wood into a style known as town lattice truss. In the inside, you can see like all this like crisscrossing of the wood, and it made like noises underneath your feet when you walked on it, and you could do the echo, like you could holler, you could hear the echo. Heather Lighty says that if you said hello the bridge would say hello back. Walking through, she'd look at the names and messages etched into the wood. It was just like going through history. But old dry wood burns easily. Around 11 a.m. on Saturday morning, a snowmobile stalled halfway through and caught fire. According to a police report, the operator did what he could to stop the blaze with handfuls of snow. But it was no use. Troy Fire Chief Bobby Jacobs watched it collapse into the river. I didn't ever think that I would ever come across this or have to deal with it or see it, but here we are. This was not an entirely remarkable event. Bridges burn. Accidents happen. About 50 years ago, according to the Troy Town Clerk, a dump truck fell through the floor of this same bridge and killed the driver. This time, the whole bridge collapsed, but the snowmobiler made it out fine. It was something of a miracle that the bridge was there in the first place. Nathan Cody is a third-generation bridge restorer in Morrisville. He worked on the bridge in 2008, and he says that when an engineer assessed the structure, they found that it shouldn't have been able to stand at all. And he goes, nothing about this bridge works in calculations. He goes, this thing should fall down. But it's been here 100 years already, so we can't argue with that. And no one did. 
The bridge was one of about a hundred historic covered bridges left in Vermont and has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places since 1974. People came from all around to see it. It was both an attraction and an ordinary way to get from here to there. Anyone would have crossed it going the back way from Newport to Jay, avoiding the pavement of Routes 100 and 105. Fire Chief Bobby Jacobs also serves as Troy's road commissioner. There's definitely other ways around, but it was more of a convenience thing for people, uh, kind of a, a shortcut, if you will. Yes, I used to go over it often, and well, we used to see to it, of course. And I was taking care of the roads and stuff. At 88, Howard Coda has been in town almost as long as the bridge has. He used to be the town's road commissioner. He hasn't been down to see the wreckage. He can't drive anymore, and even if he could, he wouldn't be going anywhere. He has cancer, and he's been staying at home with his wife Melba during the pandemic. But he does have his own small version of the bridge at home. He built it on the edge of his pond in his free time nearly 50 years ago. I like the bridge down there, and of course I used to take care of it and go across it and stuff there. So I built me one here. Coda has seven children, 14 grandchildren, and more than 20 great-grandchildren, including his granddaughter, Heather Lighty. Lighty played on the replica bridge as a kid, but most of her memories are tied to the one that burned down. Skipping stones, fishing, swimming, finding hidden treasures. As a fourth grader, she won a prize for a painting she'd done of it. As a teenager, it was a place to escape to. I can't even explain it. It almost felt like you're in a whole nother world. Like nothing could touch you, that everything was going to be all right. And you could just relax. And there was always like someone laughing. You would never feel alone there, that's for sure. A few days after the fire, the more intact side of the bridge looked as if it was trying to heave itself out of the icy February water of the Missisquoi. Bobby Jacobs, the fire chief, met me there on Monday. Well, on on this side, it still looks like it still has the shape of a bridge other than being... uh... Uh, charred timbers, um, but uh, the bridge is facing downward into the river um, as you as you approach it. Um, it's just it's it's a uh, it's a complete mess. It's just devastating, really. Troy's covered bridge traversed what was otherwise impassable: a river, a century, the space between two people. Now that it's gone, the town will likely construct some kind of replacement. But for the time being, Howard Coda's replica is the only covered bridge left in Troy. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Anna Van Dyne. And that's a wrap on Next this week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page. That's nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 